Good afternoon. It's Friday the 11th of September 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Apologies for the slight delay there. Uh, welcome to Patrick Henningsen joining us today in the studio. Uh, welcome to the programme, Pat. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and well, we're going to get straight on, Patrick, uh, with this. Uh, the Rule of Six. Uh, the Rule of Six was announced a couple of days ago by Boris Johnson and then reiterated in the House of Commons yesterday by Matt Hancock. And of course, what does this mean? Uh, we are well, not allowed to gather in groups of more than six, unless your household is uh, more than six. I mean, we covered this on, on, on Wednesday before the actual announcement was made. The fact that Corona is somewhat confused about the fact that you know schools don't seem to be affected by the rule of six and workplaces don't seem to be affected by the rule of six. But households do seem to be affected by the rule of six and certainly cafes and, and bars are. We're being guided by the science. That's the important thing. We're being guided by the science. Uh, absolutely. Well, let's just uh, have a look at what Boris uh, had to say here. Uh, first of all, about uh, restaurants. Premises and venues where people meet socially will be legally required to request the contact details of a member of every party, record and retain these details for 21 days, and provide them to NHS test and trace without delay when required. So Patrick, legal requirement to request the details. So what happens if somebody refuses to give the details? Uh, this is a, a good question. They, I, I presume they get refused entry to whichever, uh, whichever premises it is, or do the police get called? Or maybe one of the new marshals will get called, but we'll come on to that Could in a second. Just wave your hand out the door and wave down, uh, flag down one of the COVID marshals, the new COVID cops. Well, let's, let's see what Boris had to say about uh, the new COVID cops. Uh, he's talking a little bit more about, about premises uh, first. We will support local authorities to make further and faster use of their powers to close venues that are breaking the rules and pose a risk to public health. Fines will be levied against hospitality venues that fail to ensure their premises remain COVID secure. We will boost the enforcement capacity of local authorities by introducing COVID secure marshals to help ensure social distancing in town and city centres and by setting up a register of environmental health officers that local authorities can draw, draw upon uh, for support. So what do you make of that? The, the thing that stuck out with me there is this term COVID secure. So it's not, a lot, it's not about COVID safe because if you want to tell whether a venue is COVID safe, uh, it would have to be some kind of scientific basis to it or some sort of you know, real medical truth or medical basis to it. But COVID secure, Mike, looks like kind of corporate policy, COVID secure. So what is that? You have to follow sort of a set of regulations or tick off boxes and then you're secure. But you don't have to justify whether there's any real uh, basis um, in terms of public health or any real health risk or anything like that. It's literally moved right into sort of corporativist fascist kind of speak, COVID secure. Uh, absolutely. Now, the thing that struck me there, of course, is that uh, what he was saying is that councils will have uh, the power to shut down any venue which is not uh, conforming or is not COVID secure. Um, so people, individuals who perhaps don't want to cooperate when they're requested to have give their, their personal information across, um, find themselves in the difficult position of being 
possibly being the cause of that of that shutdown. So, uh, so that's quite unpleasant as well. Uh, Not only that, Mike, but the, the slippery slope here is these marshals and these new this new law. It's it will be used eventually to enforce mask wearing. Uh, in, in some cases, I, I do see the COVID marshal as being mask police as well, uh, not only social distancing. Uh, OK, but uh, what's already been said about these uh, marshals is that they won't have the power of arrest. They won't have the power to issue fines. They're going to have to go and get the police if they want to do that. The police not really sure exactly what they will be doing. Uh, but if you want to know what they will be doing, uh, head over to Cornwall.gov.uk. Here they are on screen. And if you look at the the video here, COVID security measures for our high streets, uh, because Cornwall was running the pilot for this, and it's the Cornwall pilot which is now being rolled out uh, right across the country. Um, so they've been, uh, in some of their towns, uh, have been running these marshals for uh, since July, I believe. Um, and uh, so this was the pilot. They've created safe queuing areas. Now in Plymouth today, Patrick, we're starting to see this, not bollards in the way that uh, they have them there, but we're starting to see actually bollards set into the pavements uh, to try to separate uh, pedestrians and, uh, and cyclists, uh, apparently. Uh, and uh, of course, it's going to help uh, the new marshals know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. So as the virus recedes, as the virus uh, disappears, as hospitalizations go to zero, as deaths go to zero, it's time for the government to ramp up uh, COVID measures and new laws and lockdowns and so forth. Is some, something about this, Mike, just doesn't make any logical sense. Uh, well, of course, this is all about stopping a, a second lockdown, apparently. Uh, and so we're going to stop a second lockdown by imposing a second lockdown. Anyway, anyway, let's uh, let's move on to this then, because uh, are the government's uh, uh, facing some kind of backlash in Parliament about this. Well, there is some pushback, and uh, this was just out uh, recently. This is the uh, Telegraph here. Um, there is a mounting backlash, and it's coming uh, from I would say the the, the real what's left of the conservative uh, movement within the Conservative Party, because as as anybody would tell you, Mike, you look at the policies and actions of this. Uh, Boris Johnson Tory government. There's absolutely nothing conservative about, uh, about it. It's uh, it's kind of looks like a quasi uh, uh, Marxist fascist socializing and nationalizing uh, the economy and uh, paying people to go out to eat and things like this. I mean, you don't get any more socialist than that. Um, so there is pushback here, and it's coming from uh, led by Sir Charles Walker, and he is the vice chair of the very influential uh, 1922 Parliamentary Committee. And this is what he has to say. He says, I'm incredibly uh, exercised about the continued use of government of powers that uh, we granted it six months ago, admittedly, to basically restrict people's civil liberties without any recourse back to Parliament. And he, he goes on to say, now these powers are due to be reviewed at the end of September, beginning of October, and hopefully there'll be another vote on them. And I will be voting, if given the chance, to vote in this uh, rather strange parliament uh, to curtail uh, the government's powers. So that's a Sir Charles Walker. Um, that is potentially significant. I mean, there is talk, uh, there is rumblings, Mike, on social media amongst the, uh, the conservative base about a vote of no confidence. Uh, against this government. I mean, what do you see right now in terms of the political risk uh, that Boris Johnson and his gang are really pushing really, really fast and really hard on this? What, what's the potential blowback? I think we're starting to see uh, various people, perhaps some of the usual suspects, um, being a bit skeptical about this, pushing back, as, as this report in The Telegraph is saying. 
but whether there are enough of them to uh, deal with his majority or not remains to be seen. Uh, there is no question, and we're, we're later in the programme, towards the end of the programme, we'll be talking a little bit more about this uh, uh, new legislation, this internal market legislation, which is causing such a furore over the Brexit negotiations. Um, but if you remember back to the end of last year, after Boris had just become Prime Minister, the complaint from Parliament was that Parliament is, has, isn't having a say in what Boris was doing over Brexit. Parliament's still not having a say over what Boris is doing uh, over this. And there doesn't seem to be very much pushback from the opposition. There seems to be more pushback from elements within the Conservative Party itself. So uh, we'll see how that develops. Labour is just completely absent without leave in terms of opposition. They're, the only thing they're opposing the Tories is, you know, how much do you lock down or how much social distancing? Uh, absolutely. Or how much testing or, you know, how much PPE? So there's zero opposition from the left, from the Labour. They're totally on board. Uh, pretty much with this agenda. So while Boris, as we'll mention later, while Boris is busy saying uh, to the EU that Parliament is sovereign, he's busy sidelining par Parliament at every opportunity uh, with domestic politics. It's a very interesting situation. Uh, now, let's move on to, uh, to this uh, Operation Moonshot. Uh, One billion pounds of daily COVID testing. That's the direction that we're heading in. 100 uh, billion, that's... What, a, sorry, 100 billion pounds, yes. How much is that in terms of the NHS budget? Uh, that's two-thirds of the annual NHS budget. So 100 billion pounds has just been magically uh, raised out of nothing, uh, and they're going to use that uh, to for Operation Moonbeam or whatever that's supposed to be. Uh, now, what, how, why has this happened? Because apparently, Patrick, there have been 2,919 more uh, new coronavirus cases and 14 deaths. Uh, that led to the rule of six. It's led to this partial lockdown, and it's also led to Operation Moonshot. Um, so uh, um, this was uh, mentioned in Parliament yesterday uh, by the lovely Mark, um, sorry, uh, Matt Hancock. Uh, let's just have a brief listen to what he said here. We're developing new types of tests, which are simple, quick, and scalable. They use swabs or saliva. They can be turned around in 90 minutes or even 20 minutes the so-called Operation Moonshot to deploy mass testing will allow people to lead more normal lives and reduce the need for social distancing. For instance, it could mean theatres and sports venues could test audience members on the day and let in those with a negative result. Workplaces could be opened up to all those who test negative that morning. And anyone isolating because they are a contact or quarantining after travelling abroad could be tested and released. So we're talking about a test every day you go into work, Patrick. What does this lead to? Well, I believe this leads to, to uh, uh, immunity passports eventually and uh, the traffic light system, green, amber and red, of course. We've been talking about this for months now. Uh, they're not talking about this, uh, the possibility of immunity passports openly. We've, we mentioned on the programme last week the fact that Ireland is talking about it openly, but the UK not yet. But this is obviously a prerequisite for that. Did you hear what he said at the end? He said if you're travelling or you, instead of quarantine, you'd be tested and then released yes. if you're negative. So does that imply... What happens that, if you're positive? Yeah. Are you being detained? Uh, you're going to be in a COVID facility or something like this. this is just incredible. This is not happening in other countries, by the way. China is not even doing this extreme uh, amount of biosurveillance. 
and social control. And that's what it is. It is biosurveillance. Yeah. Yes. So it's, it's taking the surveillance state to whole new levels. Now, uh, the fact is that if you read the uh, mainstream press, at least, uh, many people saying that, that this uh, it hasn't had the support of uh, the cabinet in general, that Matt Hancock has got his way over this. So they're putting this whole thing at the door of Matt Hancock itself. However, uh, when you actually look at uh, the type of things that are being said, they're talking about a Manhattan Project type approach to delivering the level of innovation uh, pace required to make this possible. So this definitely sounds like uh, it's being driven along by Dominic Cummings. Uh, because that's the type of language that he has been using. But this is also the type of language that the World Health Organization uh, is using and Bill Gates, uh, say, equating this to a World War II scenario, or we need to mobilize like we did in World War II. So invoking the Manhattan Project in terms of the, the bomb, uh, not a great positive connotation there in general, mm. but hey, the government chooses their words. Uh, but using the, world, the war narrative, the war metaphor, very important. So this is what we're going through here is a, this is the uh, living memory of this generation of yes. the country. This is what it's meant to replace the, the sort of living memory that we had with the world wars. And then you can construct a new social or a new world order around that sort of uh, psychological construct. Yes, indeed. Uh, now, Matt Hancock had a little bit more to say. Now, finally, Mr. Speaker, the most important thing that each and every one of us can do is to remember the small things that can make a big difference. Hands face space, and if you have symptoms, get a test. So this is the new mantra, hands face space. You've got to wash your hands, you've got to wear a mask, you've got to keep your social distance, hands face space. We all have to know that off by heart. And the marshals, if they stop us in the street and we don't know it off by heart, we're going to get lines to do. Uh, some other kind of, maybe we get a detention or something, I'm not sure. But it's pathetic, isn't it? This is, it is so childish, the way that uh, the, the British people being treated at the moment. Yeah, I mean, space, the last, the last word is the operative word, space. Clearly, uh, the government, Matt Hancock, are right out in orbit right now, uh, clear out in space. And they're going to overshoot the moon, by the way, on this one and head out into the abyss of the Milky Way because this is absolutely one of the most insane things. I mean, there's a lot of people wagering right now, Mike, is is this going to be the mother of all cock-ups? You know, is this gonna go down history as the ultimate? This is the, 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 the Captain Ahab moment uh, for this government that's just desperately trying to save face. They're desperately trying to save face because COVID is almost non-existent as a, as a threat to public health, and they're ramping it up to, in, in a way to justify retroactively everything that they've done from lockdown uh, till now, there's a doubling down really on policies that have been a complete failure from the beginning. Mm -hmm. From A to Z, it's been a complete failure, and here they are. They're doubling down. They're raising the ante again. Uh, is this going to be one of those tragic moments in history for this government? Uh, well, we could hope so. Now, uh, the question is, what kind of tests are we looking at here, Patrick? This is uh, quite disturbing. Some of the statements uh, being made by this uh, character here. Uh, Boris Johnson, uh, that's Al to you and me. Uh, through the moonshot, Boris says, of daily testing, everybody gets, get this, a pregnancy-style test, a rapid turnaround test in the morning. 15 minutes later, uh, you know whether you are infectious or not. So this is Boris's new rapid pregnancy-style uh, initiative. So uh, Does that mean that if you're entering your place of work, 
uh, you have to queue up outside the loos in order to take this test? Uh, or outside the door? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think this is going to be very feasible for small businesses, but I can see Amazon and some of the big Google, some of the big employers, they'll definitely come up with systems, uh, large employers, supermarkets and so forth. Okay. But, but he goes on here. This is the interesting part. You may, uh, sorry, <laughs> you may not know whether uh, you are infected or not, but you know whether you are infectious or not. That's a hard thing I had getting my head around, Mike. We'll come back to that. And he continues and says, and that gives you a kind of passport, uh, freedom to mingle with everybody else who is similarly not infectious uh, in a way that is currently impossible. So take a look at this and try to translate what exactly Boris is attempting to do here with well, the language. Well, I'm hoping you can tell me because I sure as heck can't work it out. Infected, infectious, if you're, if you're not infected, how can you be infectious? If you are infected, how could you not be infectious? Yeah, so he's saying that uh, you, know, you, you, you can't know if you're infected, but you, you will know whether you're infectious. Um, it's very confusing, to say the least. And what I see, and by the way, Mike, he, he's saying we're aiming for all of that. Uh, we're driving for that. Uh, and as I've said, uh, we cannot be 100% sure that we can deliver that in, this in its entirety. So it's completely confusing every way you cut it. I mean, it's almost like they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. And, and this is a typical abuse of the language as well that's going on. And we'll talk about this later in, a, in maybe a future segment, another mm -hmm. program. But this idea that a, a positive test for coronavirus equals a case is a, a complete abomination of uh, medical terminology. It's not. It's totally misrepresenting uh, the reality uh, of, of science and medicine, um, a positive test is not a case. And, and some people might argue as well that a positive test, a PCR test, for instance, is not an infection either. There's some people say that uh, we spoke about this on the last program, yeah. uh, that uh, the PCR test is picking up remnants of old coronavirus uh, genetic material. If it's even limited to coronavirus, in fact. Yeah, because some of this the, particular coronavirus. That's, that's right, because some of the gene sequences are, are similar between different viruses and genetic material. So the, to, to say that you have, like say today, uh, we've you know tested uh, 200,000 people and we've had 4,000 new cases, that is a total lie and a complete misrepresentation of reality. But yet, Mike, they are building their policies on top of that lie, on top of that deception. This government, the U.S. government, European governments, other countries are building all of these new COVID uh, policies, these uh, biosurveillance uh, uh, rules and laws are being built on top of the lie that a positive test, a PCR test, equals a case. It does not. It doesn't, it doesn't say whether you're going to be, inf you have an infection, whether there's an active virus, whether you're going to be sick, none of that. In fact, uh, of all the positive, quote, coronavirus tests, uh, I think a very small percentage, something like maybe 0.3%, uh, 0.3% uh, might end up with some complications. And out of those, uh, a very small percentage would end up with any serious hospitalization. Mm -hmm. So to, to represent all of these po positive tests, so-called so as cases, is a complete lie. Um, so one of the other things that uh, Matt Hancock said was, of course, uh, in order for this to work, what's needed is behavior change. And that ultimately is what this is all about, of course, because it's not about 
uh, medicine or safety at all. Uh, so perhaps uh, not surprising, we'll bring this on again. This is one of the tests, uh, one of the companies that, uh, that uh, they're intending to use. And their test uh, is based on what are described as nudge box machines. Uh, so absolutely, uh, uh, this is about behavior change uh, and it's in the language everywhere we look. Uh, so these machines uh, supplied by DNA Nudge, 5,000 of them are being, are being rolled out across NHS hospitals. Uh, in the UK, these are going to analyze DNA in nose swabs, uh, providing a negative or positive test result in 90 minutes. So that's not quite 15 minutes, but nonetheless, it's faster than the 24 to 48 hours that it's taking uh, from other people. Uh, and then we have this lot as well uh, from Nanopore. Uh, and uh, this is the Lampore test, uh, which I believe uh, will do the job in 30 minutes. Uh, so that's uh, that's another one that's on the uh, on the cards uh, at the moment, but uh, they need to go a bit further if they want to get to 15 minutes. But whether they will or not is is uh, it's probably pretty unlikely. Um, so where does that take us? Uh, we've got new jobs on the horizon. Yeah, so career opportunities uh, with mass unemployment and uh, piling up uh, people onto the unemployment dole. Uh, Q, uh, we have opportunities uh, with coronavirus. Uh, one of them, of course, the marshals, which we mentioned earlier, that's a good career move. But, uh, but it may not be paid. It might not be paid. So it's more of a work experience type thing to get your foot on the, the new COVID economy ladder, uh, the marshals. But, uh, but here's one that actually pays, Mike. This is the COVID community researcher. There's ads going out all over the country in every single borough every single district right now this so, week. So this one's from Paratemps, which is a recruitment agency. Yeah, and there's other recruitment agencies who are also pushing these jobs as well. So looking for your chance to make a difference and be part of an exciting national COVID-19 research project, join our task force. Let's take a closer look here at what they're offering. This is an opportunity uh, that you will have real impact in the heart of your community while flexibly working for one of the UK's best known brands. Is that Serco? But it's not stated. It's not stated, right. but we, we put in brackets there. Is it Circo? So you will be responsible for delivering and collecting COVID-19 swab tests and a questionnaire to the doorsteps of participating households. This is a big, big initiative, Mike. This is nationwide. We found these ads basically all over the country in different regions. So clearly this is part of uh, a bigger push here. Uh, and let's look at what else they're saying here. This is all done in a safe, socially distanced manner and you will not need to have any direct contact with any of the participants. Full PPE will also be provided. So let's take a look at the job specs here. The contract will be running until the end of March 2021, but may be extended. Is that, that's interesting. That gives us yeah. an idea of the timeline. Interested, they say? Well, what are the perks? Pay rate 130 quid a day, plus travel expenses, part-time flexible shifts, also available, an immediate start on completion of the training. And guess what? You can do the training online, Mike. So that makes it even more convenient and high-tech and very much with it, you know, into the future, this brave new world we go. Uh, well, yeah. COVID researcher. So you're not a test Nazi. You're a community researcher. Love the language. Excellent. Excellent. Well, look, one of the questions that uh, many have been asking for quite some time is when did COVID actually arrive? Uh, and uh, well, more suggestions, because we've covered this uh, quite a bit in this program, uh, the fact that uh, there's been evidence that COVID has, or at least coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, has been doing the rounds 
of various European countries uh, for quite a number of months before it was officially recognized. Well, here's another one. This is from UCLA from their newsroom yesterday. COVID-19 may have been in LA as early as last December, uh, UCLA-led study suggests. Now, what's interesting here, Patrick, is that if we go and start looking at the mainstream media coverage of this, uh, we start finding that uh, this is being used to justify uh, attacks on China because the allegation is, well, if, if, if SARS-CoV-2 was doing the rounds in December and China didn't notify the world about it until later on in December, uh, then China was trying to cover something up uh, and that China is really responsible for everything that's happened since. Yeah, the implication is they knew, but they didn't tell us. Uh, therefore, they're complicit. They started the pandemic. Uh, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, now, what I have to say here is that since uh, this situation arose, there has been work done by many people to establish the sort of ground zero of where this all began, who's patient number one, and, and so on. Uh, now, either we believe that, that we know where it began, and the allegation is it began in Wuhan, uh, or China covered up, and it was actually circulating a lot longer before uh, that patient number one that was identified in Wuhan. Um, we can't have it both ways. So what is our narrative? Is our narrative that, that it began in China, uh, and China covered up, uh, or that it was circulating earlier, or what? what is our narrative? We can't blame China for it if, in fact, it was already doing the rounds of Europe and the United States months before it was in China. And this kind of, uh, we can talk about this in a future program, Mike, but uh, this kind of goes along with some of the genetic studies, uh, particularly by Cambridge University, uh, to identify the different strains, the A, the B, and the C, of uh, this coronavirus. And uh, apparently the, the outbreak in Wuhan was a B strain. Uh, so this does imply there is a possibility uh, that the coronavirus was, uh, seed, uh, was brought and planted into uh, Wuhan first uh, from the United States, which has the A strain. Uh, Europe has this, the B and the C strain. Yes. Uh, that's the prevalent strain. So there, there's, there's a mix of all of the above in all of the different locations, but they're looking for sort of the prevalence and the timelines. So what, what you just showed me there does kind of lean towards uh, possible suspe suspected cause or suspected ground zero outside of China. Uh, uh, but in the meantime, uh, this is being used as an excuse for another attack on China. Yeah, that the, seems spun bit, it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and the British, by the way, also the story came out in the British paper, uh, the oldest uh, case on record would be a British man uh, in his 80s, I believe. Well, actually, we have that here. Oh, you've got there that. you go. So there it is. Uh, this, sh this shows there's been a major cover-up in China from the word go in. Duncan Smith calls for inquiry. As it's revealed, the British uh, grandfather, 84, who died from COVID-19, caught it in December, three days before Beijing reported the outbreak to the World Health Organization. Um, so that's the mail pushing the same narrative uh, as is being built in the United States as well. Yeah. Uh, not sure what more we can say about that, but uh, it seems that the COVID is the, the thing, the gift that keeps on giving because you can bring all kinds of policy, failed policy agendas in uh, and all kinds of uh, uh, rhetoric about foreign nations in. It just keeps on giving. Yeah, and that's going to be important in coming up to the U.S. election as well. It's uh, going to be a big issue. Absolutely. Now, uh, here's a peer-reviewed uh, article, a peer-reviewed paper, sorry, from uh, Science Direct. Effect of uh, calcifoidal uh, treatment on uh, and best available therapy versus uh, available therapy on intensive care unit admission and mortality among patients hospitalized for COVID-19 
a pilot randomized cl clinical study. So what's this about? Well, it's about vitamin D. Uh, and it's a special form of vitamin D that was used in this randomized study. Uh, they discovered that basically people that were being given this form of vitamin D uh, had a significantly less uh, risk of ending up in intensive care uh, as, uh, as people that weren't given it. Uh, and of course, uh, the point here, Patrick, is uh, that this is an issue that we've been uh, covering for quite a long time on this. Um, so here's uh, the print, vitamin D supplement uh, could reduce health risks in COVID patients, Spanish study says. Now, what's interesting about this, that this is about the paper we've just shown. It then goes on to say um, that uh, experts are not so convinced. So are the people that ran the study, are they not experts? Um, is it just that they're the wrong kind of experts? Uh, this is a typical sort of mainstream media headline here that, well, here's some good news, but experts aren't convinced. Anytime that, uh, you know, this same happened with hydroxychloroquine. Anytime there's any kind of uh, solution to this problem, which doesn't involve lockdowns or vaccines, then experts are suddenly not convinced. Um, so uh, not really sure what else to say about that, other than I'd like to know exactly who these experts are. But anyway, we've been talking about this for some time. Another reason vitamin D is important, it gets T cells going. This is Scientific American. Uh, we've got more here, new insights into the role of vitamin D in our immune system. There's just paper after paper on this, vitamin D crucial to activating immune defenses, uh, vitamin D deficiency, the silent epidemic of the elderly. And of course, as we know, uh, COVID mainly attacks the elderly. This is the, one, of the, one of the key uh, explanations for that. And the same for the black and ethnic minorities uh, that have been uh, suffering uh, disproportionately as a result of this as well, uh, because uh, they have significantly higher vitamin D deficiency than uh, other ethnic groups in the UK. Uh, so there's just information after information uh, about vitamin D and COVID-19, and but it's generally ignored uh, because vitamin D is cheaper than uh, Vaccines. Well, you can just buy it at the uh, health food uh, store or at Boots, Mike. But, but what this tells us is that uh, there's a lot going on in the immune system, Mike, that, that doesn't have to do specifically with antibodies. We're talking about adaptive immunity, like T-cell response, for instance. And then this discovery that vitamin D is actually really instrumental in the performance of your adaptive immune system, i.e. T-cells, and how important they are, and how this is also a risk factor for elderly, uh, their T-cell performance uh, does tend to drop mm -hmm. uh, with age, that sort of immune response. So be, that being the main uh, uh, defense mechanism against uh, this type of a uh, coronavirus or an influenza, um, it really does um, draw you away from this idea that a vaccine will somehow save everybody. Mm -hmm. So, and again, I think this is why the press doesn't like it. This is why the establishment doesn't like it, because it brings the conversation into natural adaptive immunity and the, the media, the government, they don't, Bill Gates, uh, the pharmaceutical companies, they don't want us to be talking about that in that conversation. No, absolutely They not. want us to be talking about antibodies and vaccines. That's it. So to them, this is the only way you can sort of save the world from the dreaded COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, well, let's come on to economic news. Uh, well, good news, Patrick. The UK economy continues recovery in Ju July, according to the BBC. Uh, this is spectacular stuff. Let's see what they have to say here. Uh, the UK economy grew by 6.6% in July, according to official figures. Now, this sounds very exciting. 
until you realize that actually it's still 12% below where it was before uh, we started all this. And of course, when you've collapsed something to almost nothing, uh, and to then below it, nothing. To, well, and then it improves slightly. So, so basically, it, this is the dead cat lifting his paw up just a few millimeters and then going, oh. Yeah. That's the 6.6%. Uh, I can't be bothered. Look, I'm going to put a fake news uh, label on this because it's an appalling article. Now, it does. It does Are you the, saying the BBC is doing fake news? No, I wouldn't possibly say okay. anything like that. Right, just checking. Uh, now, they quote, uh, they quote this gentleman, Thomas Pugh from Capital Economics, who says, the reopening of restaurants and pubs means hospitality sector rose by a whopping 140.8% between June and July. No. Right. From from, from, min not, from, yes. from minus fifty percent exactly right. okay. exactly so so I, I'm presuming that uh, uh, Thomas Pugh may well have said quite a bit more than this and the BBC just didn't bother quoting the rest I'd be very uh, disappointed if uh, if he thought this was good news well that the Rishi Sunak is probably uh, happy about that because that's all down to eat out to help out isn't it uh, no it isn't because the effect of eat out to help that was August uh -huh. so this this is before the eat out to help out. Right. So so uh, I'm sure he's looking forward to even better uh, percentage numbers that can be quoted next month. They have something to celebrate next month. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, just to put this a bit, bit more serious for a second, of course, uh, the economy is still 12% below where it was. Uh, it is pretty hard to overstate how significant that is, how serious that is. Um, and, uh, you know, the UK is still heading towards seven, eight million unemployed by the end of the year. Or uh, more. Or, or, or potentially more. But, uh, and, and it all depends on what happens over the uh, furlough scheme. And, uh, but, but many, many companies are not going to be uh, taking people off the furlough scheme. They're going to be making them redundant. What do you think these new measures are going to do for Christmas? Uh, the, the, normally, you get a Christmas bounce, right, on the economy. Uh, these new measures by the government, are they, are they going to help performance of the economy or hurt? performance uh, going into Christmas? Well, we don't actually know yet what the government is going to do once the furlough scheme ends. But social distancing, rule of six, this can't be good for economic activity. Uh, no, it's but it is forcing people uh, to do more online uh, shopping rather than actually going out into the into the community and into the, 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 the high streets. So the high streets are suffering. We're seeing closures every day. And there's, there's a dark economy. It was uh, This was written about in, uh, over the weekend, Mike, the, the office economy. That's all the businesses that serve offices in, in those environments, in those city centers and so forth. They're calling this a trillion, a trillion pound dark economy, mm. basically. It doesn't necessarily get calculated uh, in the way that other things are calculated, but you take away all the people going to work, going to the office, and then you, you have a massive economic hole that's created as a result Absolutely. of that. Absolutely. We'll keep you posted as this develops. Uh, in the meantime, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. And I just wanted to let everybody know that had uh, ordered a Not Convinced t-shirt, uh, that those finally uh, came in yesterday and we got them posted out yesterday for everybody that was, uh, that was waiting. Um, so uh, thanks for your patience on that, uh, but uh, they're on their way to you and hopefully you'll have them in a day or two. Very nice t-shirts. Very nice. A great idea for a pre-Christmas gift. Oh, well, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that, Patrick. Now let's uh, move on to Julian Assange then. Well, uh, this is the, the, the hearing, the trial has begun uh, on Monday. This is Julian Assange's extradition hearing. He's fighting extradition to the US. This is taking place at the Old Bailey 
uh, in London, and we do have some uh, some footage uh, courtesy of Let Me Look uh, TV. Let's take a look at uh, a little montage of what's happened so far this week. Freedom of the press now rests with the honorable few, the exceptions, the dissidents on the internet who belong to no club, <coughs> who are neither rich nor laden with Pulitzer Prizes, but produce fine, disobedient, moral journalism. Those like Julian Assange. Meanwhile, it's our responsibility to stand by a true journalist whose sheer courage ought to be inspiration to all of us who believe that freedom is still a possibility. I salute him. Hello and thank you all for coming here today in this very important day for the future of journalism. I was asked a little earlier, are you hopeful? Am I hopeful for justice? I am hesitant to be hopeful, but hope is not enough. We need to fight for the justice. We need to show our determination to have this extradition request dismissed because if the future of journalism is at stake. There is so much at stake here. A journalist asked me here, the Americans say that Wikileaks has caused harm by publishing information. And it angered me, and it still angers me. Do we want to talk about harm? I can talk to you about harm. I can talk to you about the young guys who went out at night to collect firewood and were killed, assassinated with a Hellfire missile. I can tell you about the family that was driving a little bit too fast towards the checkpoint in Baghdad and were killed by an 18-year-old soldier. I can tell you about the two children who are now fatherless and whom I met in Baghdad because their father, Matasser Tomal, just stopped his van and tried to save the life of a Reuters journalist, Said Smar. That is the harm I want to talk about. That is the harm that we should be focusing on. And you would not know about this harm if it wasn't for Wikileaks, if it wasn't for Julian Assange. And we have to fight for that right. It is the most important fight. It's the most important fight of this century when it comes to journalism. Let's keep up the fight. Let's stay strong. Let's not rely on hope. Let's fight for justice. So that was uh, award-winning uh, documentary filmmaker and journalist John Pilger initially, and then WikiLeaks editor just there, uh, Christian Harfson, and uh, that was outside uh, the old... Uh, Bailey with the demonstration, but uh, let's take a look at what's happened uh, with this so far. Uh, just a quick summary, this is WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is fighting attempts by the UK establishment and the United States Department of Justice to send him to the US uh, for a trial for, quote, conspiring to hack government computers and supposedly uh, in violation of the 1917 Espionage Act uh, when confidential cables were published by WikiLeaks. Mm -hmm. That was 2010 to 2011, Mike. So uh, the important takeaway here is that uh, we, we covered this earlier when we had the uh, uh, Willich Crown Court Belmarsh prison trial. We talked about that. But basically, the U.S. have recycled uh, the case they made against Chelsea Manning, then Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning. They recycled and re have reconfigured that case and, and tried to apply it to 
uh, Julian Assange here, and a total 175 years in prison. This would be back-to-back -back mm -hmm. life sentences. Uh, there's no evidence at all uh, that any of the charges by the United States, according to many leading journalists around the world, that there's any uh, you know, basis for it at all. Mm -hmm. So they literally have just made up in order to fill up a whole new set of indictments. And, and sadly, the judiciary in Britain is going along with the gag, basically. And we did hear as well, Mike, um, we'll, we'll talk about COVID has somehow made its way uh, into this. This is Judge uh, Vanessa uh, Baratzer adjourned the case uh, yesterday until Monday after being informed that one of the lawyers had been, quote, exposed to the virus. So uh, this is just uh, happening as the defense has been running rings uh, around the prosecution on this. So, uh, but COVID has come into the court. Let's look at what the uh, head of Julian Assange's defense team here, uh, Edward Fitzgerald QC, what he says here. He says, this is what he said to the, to the court. At the moment, we would be respectfully, we'd have respectfully submit, we have to go ahead on the assumption that she, the lawyer, has COVID. And he goes on to say, if that is cor a correct assumption, we shouldn't really be here. COVID would be here in the courtroom and it's not possible to tell how far it's extended. So again, uh, a little twist in the drama here, uh, the mo one of the most important precedent cases in terms of freedom of the press, and COVID has somehow come in, Coroni's come in to disrupt the whole situation. This is a, 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 with worldwide ranging implications. Yeah. So uh, let's look a little bit about, the timing of this is interesting. Uh, this is, this is coming right now at the moment where the, we have the resumption of criminal trials and in-person hearings in England and Wales. And just this week, Birmingham Crown Court evacuated, uh, closed temporarily for a, quote, deep clean after staff, a staff member, one staff, had developed coronavirus symptoms, Mike, not even tested positive, but developed symptoms. And this follows on in August, Mount Manchester Crown Court shut after eight staff tested positive for coronavirus. So this is the, we, we seeing, are you seeing a bit of a, tr we're seeing a trend here. Uh, yeah, because of course, while while the, we were in lockdown, uh, they were holding some cases via video link. Uh, and this of course is gonna build pressure to start doing the same thing again. Uh, but this is uh, something which has been on the cards for many years. This is Brian Levison, Lord Levison, who ran the uh, inquiry into the freedom of the press, of course. But after he ran that inquiry, his next job was to look at the digitization uh, of the British court system. Uh, modernization of justice through technology and innovation is how that was branded by the Ministry of Justice. Uh, and he said that he wanted to see uh, more remote hearings, uh, lighter case management by justice, by justice judges, including uh, the provision of timetables of, for evidence and speeches, all that provided electronically uh, and so on. So. So uh, it, it is amazing how uh, COVID keeps apparently working in cooperation with governments to drive forward policy agendas that they've maybe not been able to get much traction on in, the, in recent years. Policy agendas that were already already on the policy track before COVID-19 hit. Absolutely. And COVID has accelerated uh, all of these policies. Uh, absolutely. This is just one example. Uh, uh, yep, absolutely. Um, okay, now, uh, large furore going on in Parliament at the moment over this uh, new internal market bill. Uh, this is uh, causing friction between the UK and the EU as well. Uh, and uh, it's 
because the, the government is determined to press ahead with it, even though it overrides key parts of the Brexit agreement over the divorce. This is for the, 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 the legislation that went into place or the, the treaty that went into place to get us out of the EU and inverted commas uh, and not so much to do with the uh, future relationship, which is when we go back in again. Uh, but of course it does, it, it is very likely to affect those negotiations for the future relationship. Um, so this bill was originally proposed in July. Uh, it sets out government plans uh, to make sure that uh, trade between the four nations of the United Kingdom, because we need to have an internal market uh, between those four nations with devolution and so on. And, and it's mainly this issue has, has arisen mainly because of devolution, um, because uh, the de devolved administrations were able to set certain policies, but only within uh, constraints set by the European Union. Uh, now that we're out of the European Union, in inverted commas at least, then there's a the potential that the that administrations could do different things. The Scottish government could do something different to the English government, and this is an attempt by the uh, by the UK government to uh, actually put some uh, constraints back on the devolved administrations. Um, but there's a, a conflict between this and uh, what the, the the agreement that that they already have in place with the European Union. So uh, there's a recognition and a, an admission by the British government that this. Uh, this new legislation which is going through Parliament is actually in breach of international law. They acknowledge that. They're being heavily criticised by many of the same people, by the way, uh, that you were talking about earlier in the programme, Patrick, that are criticising them over the continued uh, uh, pseudo-lockdown that we're in at the moment. Um, and so uh, it, remains how to, it remains to be seen how this goes. But the, as I said earlier, Patrick, the key thing here is the government insists that in respect of this, Parliament is sovereign. And yet the government won't go near Parliament, doesn't want to know Parliament, doesn't want to know Parliament's opinions when those opinions don't suit the government. So this government seems to be utterly out of control. And uh, and yet there doesn't seem to be, other than, as we've said, this uh, relatively older conservative group within the Conservative Party seems to be the only opposition to them because the official opposition isn't providing any opposition at all. This is a total breakdown of democracy, basically, uh, in the UK. And this does follow that sort of long trend, Mike, with the dismantling of the House of Lords, because isn't that where you would, might also get opposition uh, to what's going on right now? Uh, this was begun under the, uh, the Blair government, uh, and now we have a situation where, um, well, par democracy parliament is, is not really in the picture, is it? Uh, well, absolutely. That's absolutely right. Now, on the international level, then, the Irish had something to say about this uh, a couple of days ago. The UK must honour the uh, divorce agreement to get a free trade deal. So, that, so the Irish absolutely saying that the future relationship is dependent on them honouring uh, the previous, relation, the, the previous uh, treaty. Uh, but what uh, Varadkar then went on to say uh, was that the Irish government is going to be giving uh, Irish companies a grant of €9,000 per employee hired or redeployed to handle the customs changes uh, which are going to come about as a result of, uh, of whatever deal is done over Brexit, if there is a deal done. So um, this, it's interesting to watch how this develops, but I, I just want to once again uh, make this note of caution that, of course, as we approach the deadline towards the end of the so-called transition period on the 31st of December, um, we are going to see uh, many more headlines and much more 
angst from people that are involved in this negotiation and from other political commentators, and particularly from people that don't want that never wanted us to leave the EU in the first place, mm. uh, suggesting that the sky is falling and that uh, the world is ending uh, because of the way that these negotiations are going. Uh, whether this is whether Boris and David Frost and his team are uh, absolutely determined to take us out with a no deal as they are implying or whether that is merely a negotiating tactic. I think we've got plenty of evidence that it's more likely to be the, the latter of those. It's just a negotiating tactic and we probably are just going to have to ignore much of the noise that there's going to be around this for the next three months. And the border issue in Ireland uh, hasn't actually gone away, has it? It absolutely hasn't gone away. And, and I think there is a general acknowledgement now that that border will be down the Irish Sea. Mm. So we'll, uh, we'll cover that more. Uh, we will. We will do. Uh, now let's uh, let's come back on to uh, uh, Alexei Navalny. Uh, apparently, it, he was poisoned with Novichok, as we mentioned on the last couple of programs. But uh, slow, slow, Patrick. Oh, this, this is the new Novichok. This is the new Novichok. It's a new kind of Novichok. It's deadlier, apparently, even though it didn't kill him. It's deadlier. Uh, but it's slow-acting form it, of the of the of the compound. That's right, Mike. You've absolutely nailed it. It's it's deadlier, but not deadly. That's the important thing you need to understand about this Novichok. It doesn't actually kill anybody. It's but it's deadlier, and it's but it acts slower. This is the this is the new time release feature uh, that Putin supposedly is rolling out with a new. Uh, in a time release capsule of some kind, a bit like uh, some kind of painkiller or something? Sort of like that, but in a kind of right. a, it, we think it might be a gel or maybe a spray on gel, but with a, with a time release of, I don't know, something between, you know, an hour and 48 hours or something. Well, like apparently that. this new form of uh, uh, Novichok, uh, Novichok, of course, originally formulated by the Soviet uh, Union, apparently, in the 1970s, but apparently this this version is previously unknown to Western intelligence agencies, so they haven't come across it before, uh, and so therefore it can only have been the Russians that did it. Sure, it's especially since uh, uh, especially since the only country who who reconstituted Novichok uh, in in the uh, laboratory setting was the United States. In fact, at at Fort Detrick, um, so, uh, abso absolutely, and, and the country who decommissioned the chemical weapons. Uh, labs in Uzbekistan uh, was the United States. Yes, indeed. So, but but don't look over there. No, don't. They have nothing to do with it. Nothing at all. Uh, well, but uh, the Germans seem a bit confused, a bit like Coroni. They do get confused. So uh, here's uh, Geza uh, Andreas von Gehr, who's a German ambassador to Russia, and he said this, uh, we have no intention of delivering any evidence to Russia. There's no reason to do so. Uh, it's kind of a paraphrase of what he said. So the Russians want the evidence to show that it was Russian Novichok which uh, caused his poisoning. Uh, and But the Germans have said uh, that they're not going to do that. There's no reason to do so. But that's a bit confusing because uh, just a few days ago, Heiko Maas, the German foreign minister, said, we approved the Russians' request for assistance uh, long ago. And as a matter of fact, there's no reason to turn it down. So this is a bit confusing. So why... What has caused the German government to change their mind, as they clearly have? Well, perhaps we get a clue from what we talked about on Wednesday, which was the G7 statement on the Navalny, where they uh, jointly, the G7 nations issued a statement saying basically the G7 foreign ministers of Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, UK and United States and the high representative of the European Union are united in condemning in the strongest possible terms 
the confirmed poisoning of Alexei Navalny. And we made the point uh, that this was the result of uh, the rapid response mechanism launched by Theresa May back in 2018, June or July at the G7 meeting there. So the German government then, Patrick, uh, clearly had every intention of giving the evidence that they have that this was uh, uh, real Novichok to the Russians. Uh, and then they all got around the table with the other G7 leaders and between them they decided that this probably wasn't a good idea because actually maybe there's no evidence there. But anyway, that's, that's or, or sheer it, speculation. There might be BZ or something like that well, in the test right. that was uh, probably put there just as a tracer just to Possibly. ensure the lab... Uh, so, so, uh, so the G7 have decided uh, that, that they've got to issue a joint statement and, and maybe uh, Germany should change their tune, which they seem to have done. Uh, which uh, brings us on to... Uh, uh, Arne Kalatz, uh, the German Ministry of Defence, because he said the data has been given to the OPCW. So the Russians should feel assured that the OC OPCW will do a good job, shouldn't they? Uh, yeah, the OPCW, completely credible organisation, right? Totally has, hasn't done any cover-ups of anything, hasn't made up any chemical weapons attacks on Syria. I'd go with them, sure. If I was the West, I would go with the OPCW. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, here's what the Russian spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, had to say. We don't know what they've given to the OPCW. We'd naturally prefer that they hand over those analyses directly to us. But it gets worse, Patrick, because as RT uh, is reporting, and thank you for this one, uh, Navalny aids rubbish sensationalist Der Spiegel Bellingcat article that claims new security fears uh, for recovered activists. What, what are they saying here? Well, uh, as usual, Bellingcat is drafted in. And unfortunately, uh, Der Spiegel, as an international publication, the reputation is just completely in tatters because they've allowed the Western intelligence agencies to kind of allow Bellingcat to have kind of a in-house position there in terms of pumping out whatever the sort of NATO state propaganda line is, uh, especially on anything Russia-related. Uh, so now Bellingcat has this kind of in-house position there. They burrowed into Der Spiegel and completely destroyed any of their journalistic reputation as a result. But they're getting a lot of awards for this, Mike, in fact. So this is the amazing thing. Is this, there's, there's always awards that go along with this sort of reporting, even though it's not factually based. And most of it is just contrived propaganda. Yes. Um, well, we'll end with this one then, Patrick, because it is uh, the 11th of September. Well, uh, it is the anniversary of September 11th. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is the 19th yes, indeed. anniversary yes. of 9-11. Uh, just, I can't imagine what next year is going to be like, mm -hmm. uh, the 20th anniversary. But um, the judge orders here uh, testimony from Saudi officials uh, in a suit. This is a lawsuit over the, their involvement in the 9-11 attacks. So this, this just was announced yesterday, so the timing of that is um, somewhat auspicious, Mike. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't think it's going to be that easy for uh, any U.S. court to get any Saudi officials to come uh, and provide any evidence or testify. They're most likely going to get blanked on this. But what, what, what we're seeing, Mike, is this is being used as leverage. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. And, and part of it, I think, my personal opinion, is to keep Saudi uh, in line uh, with the West, with the United States and its allies, and making sure they're not going off reservation uh, on whatever the global agenda is. So 9-11 is a very convenient uh, device uh, in order to keep the Saudis cornered where they where the West want them, basically. And they have the, the Khashoggi uh, investigation is a complete sham. Uh, and the whole narrative behind that is just a complete wreck. So that's also being used in a way 
um, as well to keep them cornered. Mm -hmm. So it, this is a big deal in terms of oil price production, OPEC, um, and then the geopolitics in the Persian Gulf vis-a-vis -vis Iran, for instance, uh, yep. and aggressive policies towards Iran. We're already seeing the UAE is already opening up uh, normal relations with Israel, flights going back and forth, um, all sorts of exchanges. So that's a big... That's well, a actually, big, Donald Trump was claiming credit for that. Yes, and, and so this is an election set piece yes. that Trump wanted to get into place with, with his uh, son-in-law, Jared Kushner, in the run-up to the election. But uh, Arabs are seeing this as a stab in the back uh, to Palestine. And, and really, if you look at it historically, it kind of is. And in terms of international law, it is. Now, Saudi is pretty much uh, aligned generally with the UAE on most things. So uh, Saudi is also uh, moving closer towards Israel as well. This invariably is going to cause even you know, more tension and more of a split between certain Arab states and others. Uh, with Palestine being the central issue there. Yeah. So we'll take a look. But yeah, 9-11 uh, next year. Is, you know, you have a whole year to gear up for the, the biggest festival of, uh, of, of, you know, terrorist remembrance ever, probably in your lifetime, will be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you very much, Patrick. And thank you for joining us today. We've got to leave it there. Uh, we hope you have a great weekend. We'll be back at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Uh, we'll see you then. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.